Hello, how are you? Hey, Keaton. Hey, how's it been? It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, you too. You're in your office. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, just finished a survey, so oh, wow. have, yeah, I have a little bit of time before I have to start writing some notes. One uh, one new dick on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you're watching this video and you don't know about Dr. Chen, you're probably brand new to bottom surgery research because he's very prevalent, well known. To give him a formal introduction that I think he deserves, uh, Dr. Chen is a reconstructive urologist who specializes in genitourinary surgeries for transmasculine individuals. He graduated magna cum laude from University of California, San Diego, and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Behan Prize in Surgery and remained in Pittsburgh for his general surgery and urology training. He subsequently completed a fellowship in reconstructive urological surgery and returned to Pittsburgh, joining the faculty as an assistant professor of reconstructive urology. After three years in Pittsburgh, he went home to California to perform gender-related genitourinary surgeries, including phalloplasty metoidioplasty, glansplasty, monsplasty, scrotoplasty, urethroplasty, fistular repair, insertion of testicular and penile implants. And as of March of this year, 2021, he has completed over 3,500 genitourinary gender-affirming surgeries, including 441 phalloplasties slash metoidioplasties, 293 penile implant surgeries, 401 testicular implant surgeries, 396 scrotoplasties, 503 urethral surgeries, not counting the urethroplasties performed at the time of Fallow and Meta and various other reconstructive procedures. Those are some really impressive stats. It's pretty cool to have uh, some numbers like that. And congratulations on all of that. That's amazing. Thanks, um, <laughs> I So we left off with the last video um, talking about scar healing. I figure we might as well just pick up where we left off. We were talking about how silicone sleeves can help scar healing in terms of helping the scar be less rigid and bumpy. Potentially, you were talking about how ultimately when it comes to scar healing, time and genetics play the biggest role. One other aspect of scar healing I wanted to get into was talking about the potential for removing scars, especially as it pertains to ALT. I ran into at least one instance online and this was fairly recent and I was pretty blown away that this was a possibility. I understand that it's a very tedious thing to do, but um, a guy was talking about, and I don't know whose patient he was, it could have been another surgeon, but he was talking about how his ALT scar was causing him a lot of just difficulty in life. He had it removed by, it sounded like they put like a tissue expander in his thigh so that they would um, inject saline solution or something into every couple of weeks. And over the course of six months, they were able to drastically reduce and remove that scar. And uh, his complications were largely improved slash reduced. Is this something that you guys have, have, have done frequently or that you perform uh, at all? Usually pretty, pretty rare, Keaton. And I, I have to say that that's the part that I don't, I don't do. I don't do like donor site revisions, um, but from seeing and talking to patients as well as my own my plastic surgery colleagues so for some patients the, the thigh scar can become really restrictive and one way to help with that is to do what you what you mentioned which is put a tissue expander on the healthy tissue on the side which allows the expansion of neighboring healthy tissue which later on once that tissue is has been stretched and matured it can then be advanced over the 
the scar site that's causing problems with daily activities. So that's something you can do. And it usually takes several procedures to get to um, complete coverage if that's something that's needed uh, or wanted. But I would say the majority of patients who undergo ALT, they, over time, the scar just softens up and it usually doesn't limit what the day-to-day -day activities are like. Yeah, I've noticed that patients, just, just various patients talk about how their leg can be weaker and more tired after surgery uh, and sometimes comes back to sort of a normal level and catches up, I guess, with the other leg. Um, and other times they can experience this sort of in an ongoing fashion and a lot of scar sensitivity. Um, so if you don't perform scar revisions, does that mean you also don't perform the scar removal? It depends where it is. Like scars on, around the perineum, the scrotum, the penis, I, I do. I do help with those. But when it comes to the donor site, the arm or the, or the thigh, uh, that's usually, I usually refer that to my colleague. At the Bunky Clinic? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so they probably have experience doing that. Yeah, uh, and, and I don't see it that often because um, oftentimes we, we do certain surgeries together. But yeah, I, I think there was only there are only two patients that I know of in the past six years that underwent that that type of donor site revision. Uh, the more common revision is um, there is usually kind of built-in laxity in the tissue already. Over time, the tissue stretches. You don't necessarily need an expander. You can just advance the tissue without expanding. And that I've seen them done multiple times. Oh, interesting. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, so then let's talk about sensation. Let's just open with like a blanket question around like what should people expect in terms of erotic and tactile sensation? It's mostly erotic because uh, the nerve we use is the dorsal nerve of the native penis. And that nerve is connected to the sensory nerve of the thigh flap or the arm flap. Those are the two flaps, the most common flaps we use to, to build a penis. And so with the arm flap, it takes about a year, maybe two to get mostly erotic with some tactile sensation in the penis. It occurs in probably 95% of or so of patients. In patients who choose a thigh, we tell them it's probably close, we've seen probably about 80% over a couple, one to two years, get erotic and some tactile. And if you think about kind of the nerve density, like when you touch your arm with two fingers, you can feel pretty distinctly that there are two fingers touching your arm. But if you use those same two fingers spaced evenly apart and you touch your thigh, it's harder to feel that that's like two fingers touching your thigh. It feels more like one or it's harder to distinguish. So that's kind of a quick and dirty example of why the arm nerves are more sensitive or more, more they're more numerous and they're more sensitive than the, the, the nerve endings in the thigh. Interesting. I'll have to try that out after this video. So... Do you find that the erotic sensation usually comes in before the tactile or it's just kind of like... It's, it's kind of all, all over. They, I, I, I would say they probably come in together. It's not like the erotic nerves come faster. It's the nerve that we use to connect to the, the donor site nerve or the donor flap nerve uh, is mostly erotic with some tactile and the nerves kind of grow in every which way. What's the, what's the typical timeline? I guess you were saying about eight months, eight to 12 months before patients should start expecting? We, we've, we've heard uh, patients get sensation earlier. That's not, not many do, but some patients have told us they start getting sensation between three and six months after surgery. And then from there onward, they, they tell us there's a increasing area on the penis that, that gets sensation. Yeah, is it tend to be sort of spotty? Yes. At first, right, where it's just kind of yes. like sections here or there? Yeah, probably the most common area is the base of the penis starts to feel some, and then 
it then becomes more spotty and then it becomes more more complete as a year or two passes. I imagine it like tree roots that are kind of growing up from the base. Is that like an accurate description? Um, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're growing out towards the penis and the, the nerve in the penis, once you cut it and move, move it, once you cut the nerve from the donor site, whether it be the arm or the, or the thigh, and you, and you move it, that cut nerve no longer becomes the thigh nerve or the arm nerve. It becomes a nerve highway, basically. And then whatever you attach, whatever nerve you attach to that nerve highway will then allow that original, the, the, the recipient nerve to grow into that highway and then give whatever tissue that is the sensation from the original source nerve. Very interesting. And I remember you, just to recap, saying that whether somebody buries or doesn't bury their natal T-dick, they're going to get the same nerve hookup. Correct. So in patients who don't want um, burial of the native penis, what we do is um, we get the nerve higher up to preserve the skin on the native penis. Of course, a lot of people have fears that they'll lose the ability to orgasm. I, you know, I know from reading that, like, you know, a lot of people talk about how stroking the base, of course, just like you were saying, the, the, the base is usually the most sensitive. Um, and they're sort of directly stimulating the natal T-dick in the base. Have you experienced a lot of issues with people no longer like being able to orgasm at all? Or has it been a long road for a lot of patients to find their way back to that? You know, and also that, you know, you're probably in a difficult position to answer that, but anything you can shed light on? I, I think it's all of the above, Keaton. Um, but, but I would say what's published out there, uh, I don't know if it's... Um, 100% accurate, but what's published out in the, in the surgical literature is that patients who were able to have orgasms before were still able to have it after, the details of which are not, are, are not available, right? They just say, yes, ability to orgasm, check, right? There's no like, detail about the, the analysis of that scenario. Uh, but there are some patients who don't get sensation and do have trouble um, getting an orgasm afterwards. Um, it doesn't happen often. But, but it, it can't happen. And, and those are, are really difficult situations because you can't really re-dissect out that nerve. Once the nerve has been dissected, it's really hard to find again. Nerves can be found if in fields that haven't been operated on previously. But once you dissect out a nerve and try to find that nerve again, that's, that's a, pre a pretty difficult thing to do. And you may cause, you probably cause more damage trying to do that. When, when we talk about patients who say, I guess the, the worst, most devastating example would be someone who maybe loses their penis for, from a blood clot or something like that. We don't get this, we can't find the dorsal nerve again of the native penis. We have to use a different nerve because of that scarring. So we usually would get, say, the uh, ileal inguinal nerve, which is in the groin, and it supplies the side of the scrotum and the inner thigh. Uh, so that's not a great substitute for the penis, but it's better than, than, something, than nothing. In, in, for, for some cases, but we wouldn't do that in someone who already has a functional penis, uh, but then they were in the small percentage of unfortunate patients who could not get sensation or could not orgasm. Is that thigh nerve being hooked up to the scrotum in all cases, or is that sort of a backup nerve that you can... That, that's, that's a backup nerve. For, for haloplasty, we want the, the nerve that goes to the original penis to extend to the new penis. Okay. So we don't, we don't bother with the ileolinguinal nerve uh, at the time of the initial surgery. But I know some, some practices, they do connect that nerve. Um, but for us, it, it didn't quite make anatomic sense to have the penis feel like the inner thigh and, and groin. Sensation in the scrotum, 
tends to stay intact for the most part. And in fact, I've like, I know some guys that have said their erotic sensation in their scrotum is, is strongly enhanced after scrotoplasty. And I wonder if this is because it's sort of harvesting skin that's around the front hole. You know, that's pretty erogenous tissue that then becomes a scrotum. And then suddenly, I guess, they find this erotic relationship to their scrotum that they didn't have before to just the, the outer labia. That's an interesting um, observation, Keaton. Uh, I, I would think just anatomically reasoning this, the original penis, when the native penis, when we connect the urethra and dissect out the nerve and, and bury it, depending on a, a patient's anatomy, can end up being at the base of the new penis, at the junction between the penis and the scrotum, or just at the upper part of the scrotum deep underneath. And it, it could be that patients are experiencing more erotic sensation in their scrotum because of that, because the, the head of the native penis is now sitting within the scrotum itself, kind of further back in. So that's one, one, one reason. The, the other reason could be since erotic sensation, uh, orgasms, things like that are, are both physiologic and, and psychologic. If you feel more comfortable in your new anatomy, that may be able to allow some patients to, to have more sensation in, in that region. Um, but we definitely do an extensive scrotoplasty where there's a, what we call a dual blood supply. So blood supply to the majority tissue from above and below. And I purposely sacrifice the blood supply from below so that I can push the tissue forward and build a scrotum in the anatomic position, which sits a little bit more in front at the, the front part of the, what we call the perineum, which is the area of between the inner thighs. So by doing that, we definitely disrupt a lot of nerves, but the upper nerves from that, that parallel the blood supply from above are, are preserved. So for some patients, they may not get sensation in their scrotum for a while. For others, they the, the nerves are still there. They, they get sensation pretty quickly. Uh, and then the, there are patients who have the in-between experience. When you say sacrifice blood supply, does that have any ramifications for patients that keep the front hole? No, no, no. So uh, the dual blood supply, the upper and lower blood supply uh, allows surgeons to move tissue around. So I could cut the upper upper blood supply and move it down. Why would anyone do that? Some surgeons do that on purpose. The reason to, to cut the upper majority and move it down would be to make the native penis more prominent, specifically for patients who decide metoidoplasty is a better fit for them. I, I never do that at least initially, because most patients, when they see me for metodioplasty, they want their penis in the anatomic location with the scrotum in the anatomic location. If you cut tissue from above and then move it downward, yes, you make the penis more, more um, prominent, but now you're pushing scrotal tissue downward towards the, the perineum or anus. So you end up having a higher chance of sitting on your scrotum or ma making daily activities more difficult. Oh, uh, yeah. I have heard that as a complaint with at least one surgeon I can think of where the scrotum tends to rest between the legs instead of sort of moved up like you're describing. While we're on the topic of meta for just a minute, I did have somebody from the website ask me, how does having a full meta impact fallow? Sorry, does that result in less surgery time? Um, does the implant negatively impact the sensation in the scrotum? So if they're coming to you and they've already had a full meadow with scrotum and then they're getting fallow, it seems like there would be some less surgery time because they've already got scrotoplasty, of course. 
And then does the implant negatively impact the sensation in the scrotum? So I guess that's getting into the topic of erection devices. That, that question is, is hard to answer specifically, um, mainly because metodoplasty is done so many different ways. One common way of doing metodoplasty would be to free up the tissues around the native penis to have it more prominent, build a urethra within it, but then not do much with the, the scrotoplasty other than taking the major tissue and sewing it together in the midline and then putting implants inside. I think that's a reasonable way to do it. The downside with that is the scrotum ends up being closer to the anus, the tissue is with it between the legs, and when you have implants in there, it can definitely affect day-to-day -day activities and, ca and cause issues. That type of, if someone has a meta of that type and then decide meta is not enough, they need phalloplasty. It doesn't compromise too much because usually the vaginectomy is already done and patients want vaginectomy. And usually a good segment of the, urethra, the urethroplasty is already done, which means potentially less problems with the urethra. So in that, in that situation, things all healed well. Uh, the, the main question would be what happened with those implants and pushing on the major tissue. Sometimes having the implants in there for a while, they can thin the major tissue, so it makes it more dangerous to do the scrotoplasty the way, the way we do it, which is modeled after the Ghent type of scrotoplasty, where we base our, our, our scrotal flaps on an upper blood supply and sacrifice the lower blood supply. In patients who've had these testes implants, we, we usually get rid of them and assess the thickness of the tissue. If it's thick enough, then yes, we can do the Gantt-style scrotoplasty, move everything forward, make a pouch-like scrotum that sits in the anatomic position. If they, the tissue is too thin, then we hold off. We take the implants out and then stop, sew the, tissue, the, the, the scrotal tissue back together in the midline and let things heal. We can come back later, allowing the body to mature that, that, that area, build more, have more blood vessels move into that area, and then we can later do the scrotum but um, doing it at the same time when it's been thinned out by an implant puts the scrotal tissue at risk of not getting enough blood flow, in which case you get necrosis of the scrotum. So that's one, one style. If someone has vitreoplasty done where they take the upper tissue and move down, uh, and now the scrotum is near the perineum, there's not much we can do for that because the upper blood supply has been, been destroyed. Um, I think that just because I know sort of the situation with this person specifically. Um, I think that when they say implant, they mean erection device. Into so, the uh, yeah, so, so when they come to you for fallow and they've already got a scrotum that they're happy with, I think that they're asking like when the erection implant goes in, assuming the pump in the scrotum, does that typically interrupt some scrotum sensation? Oh. Anyway, so, you know, I thought we were talking about meta. So if, if someone had phalloplasty already yeah. uh, and they already have testicle implants and the implants are in a pouch-like scrotum and they, they're interested in getting uh, an inflatable penile implant later, what I do in that situation is uh, usually make an incision in front of the pubic bone and the inflatable implant has three components. There's a cylinder component, a reservoir, and a pump. The cylinder, reservoir, and the pump are all connected with tubing. The pump brings fluid from the reservoir into the cylinder and vice versa so that you can get an erection or tumescence two, two or uh, a flaccid penis. That incision in front of pubic bone dissect three, three pockets for each of those components of the inflatable implant. And someone who has a testicle implant already, we push the testicle implant out through that incision in front of the pubic bone. Once the testicle implant's out, 
the, the capsule is preserved around the implant, around the original testicle implant, and we put the pump within that capsule after washing everything out with antibiotic solution. From doing that, we're not really messing with the, the, the scrotal tissue on the outside. So I, I would imagine the nerve sensation should be intact. Um, we, we don't mess with that area too much in that specific situation. And when you say capsule, you mean like like a capsule that the body just forms? Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Yeah, so when, when you put a, a foreign body inside the scrotum, like a testicle implant, we heal by, by forming a protective barrier around that, that implant. Mm-hmm. I would say on average, it probably takes about six weeks to get a nice mature capsule around that implant. The body makes it to, to kind of separate our tissue from uh, this, this invader that's in, our, that's in our body right now. I use that as an extra layer. So if you think about going, the layers going from outside to inside, you now have scrotal skin, scrotal fat, and then a capsule before you hit the implant. In someone who never had a, a, a testicle implant, you have, and you put up um, an inflatable implant with the pump, you have scrotal skin, fat, and then the pump. There's no capsule yet, right? Because they never had, body never had a chance to build a capsule around a testicle implant. Logically, it sounds like that would be protective. If, if someone has a testicle implant first, and then we put the pump within the capsule, logically, that would be protective, but I haven't been able to prove it yet. Right. So then, so you're not recommending that somebody like has testicle implants for six months before they get an erection? We've been telling patients they can choose either way. Uh, We can do penile implant without prior testicle implants, or we can do it with prior. And we haven't proved, we haven't been able to figure out if if that truly is protective. And you work with two types of erection devices. Yeah, they're they're made by a company called Coloplast. Uh, one is called the Genesis, which is a semi-rigid, and the other is called the um, the Titan, which is the inflatable. Uh, I, I do have to disclose that I am a consultant for Coloplast. Uh, I became a, a consultant probably last year, but I've been using their products for a long time, uh, mainly because the products they have are better designed for the the phalloplasty penis. Mainly, for example, the inflatable has a solid component at the back and a and a balloon component at the front part. Uh, and that solid component is helpful because it allows us to throw sutures through it that helps anchor it to the pubic bone, which is the attachment site. And you need to attach an implant to something secure because that's the only way to, to, to have the axial rigidity strong enough to be able to use it for penetration. Do both of the implant types get attached to the pubic bone? Correct. And the reason why we do that, the anatomic erectile tissue uh, in anatomic penises kind of come from that area. So we try to mimic that type of anatomy by putting it in that similar location. Thinking of something being stapled to that area is like yeah. pubic bone sounds really intense. Like, yeah. yeah. But I, I never hear of guys complaining that they have some sort of deep internal ache or anything associated with that. Do you? Not really. I, I know it's it's common to have discomfort there after surgery in the in the post-op period, like the first two to six weeks. Sure. Um, but very rare would someone have long-term chronic pelvic pain from that. And the uh, the the trans-specific implant. Um, you're in the U.S., so I assume you're not Correct. using that. Correct. In it's Canada, not- is it is it allowed? Have you heard? Uh, I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. You know, there's really I, I should know too, but uh, I, I haven't been able to <laughs> confirm that. 
I yeah, we, we're not allowed to use those here. Uh, I looked at the studies that come out regarding the FTM device made by uh, Zephyr. On the surface, it looks like it makes a lot of sense. You know, the implant is a single cylinder. You don't have to modify two cylinders into one. It's one cylinder. It has a, a bigger head. Um, the, the pump is more round like a testicle. And then the, the back part of the implant is flat. And you think that should help attach it to the bone better. But I haven't found that like logistically to be like I've never operated on it personally, but logistically, I think trying to trying to make that that work sounds a little bit more difficult. And I'll give you an example. The solid head that is bigger than the 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 cylinder itself means that you have to make a channel inside the penis that's big enough to accommodate that that bigger glands glands or or tip of the implant. If that's the case, the 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 more you have to stretch out and and the bigger the channel that you make the higher the risk you could de denervate or make the penis numb or worse, devascularize or knock off the blood supply to the penis. So that, that's one, one problem. When I looked at some of the, the articles that talked about this, some of the surgeons shaved the head in order to make it fit. So why would you have an implant that looks cool, but then when you actually try to use it, you're actually shaving the head and put it in. What do you mean uh, when you say shave the head? Of, of the glands. They made the glands smaller so it matches the shaft so they wouldn't have to make such a big space and take that extra risk did zephyr build it that way because they're trying to reduce like glands flattening right right by if you can imagine having a, a bigger tip yeah. uh, the, the gland skin would probably hug that and look probably a little better instead of having um maybe a, a dimple or a little bit of skin tinting where the head of the of the implant is and the water glands is. So it sounds like a good intention, but maybe not. Yeah, and I think the the nuanced uh, improvement there would be maybe having a asymmetric inflation, which what I mean by that is the shaft can uniformly inflate a certain amount, but then the, the distal shaft of the implant can inflate more. That way you can put it in as a single tube, but then when you inflate it, it inflates asymmetrically where it's bigger at the head and then uniform in the middle but i haven't seen anything like that yet well coloplast should use you to design something yeah to them I'm, I'm really junior they you know they, they like <laughs> to talk to more senior surgeons than myself so how do you like when guys are trying to decide between the malleable rod and the inflatable pump you know how do you help guide them through that decision i know that sometimes like potentially in a case like mine where, you know, if somebody doesn't have scrotoplasty, then the decision is like made for you. You have to have the malleable rod, but right. somebody's had scrotoplasty and they're trying to decide between the two. How do you help them through that? I first ask them like what their kind of daily activities are. If, if patients are really active or they have a job where they're, if, if it's a weird social environment to have a, an erection all the time, like if you're, you're a teacher <laughs> or work at a daycare, things like that. Right. you would probably do better with the inflatable. If that's not uh, a patient's job, then I, I tell them if you're, if you're really active and, and you're, you ride a bike a lot, things like that, it's probably better to have an inflatable so you can deflate it so you're flat most of the time and only inflate it if you need to. Um, but if the idea of, of inflating, deflating, uh, the idea of having to replace the device maybe every five or 10 years, if, that, if that's too much, then maybe the malleable is better. Uh, and then the other reason to do the malleable is if uh, a patient's had prior major abdominal surgery, because I usually put the reservoir 
in the area above the pubic bone. And if someone had major surgery in the lower abdomen, you can't really do that. Uh, and then the pump, you got to have a scrotum that's pouched like in the anatomic spot. If you don't, you can still put a pump in, but it's harder to, to, to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis because now the that you'll have um, more fullness in the perineum and it'll be between the legs and more uncomfortable. So the malleable rod doesn't need to be switched out as often, eh? Theoretically. Uh, I, I looked at my, my data for the malleable rod uh, and granted my data is pretty short-lived. I've, I've been collecting it from October 2017 to now. Uh, and the percentage of patients who needed surgery after the malleable is probably about 20 to 30%. Whereas the inflatable was closer to 15, but that said, it's a short. It's 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 been a, a short period of follow-up, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the there are um, there's some evidence that the inflatable in the anatomic penis will last about 10 years for 70% of patients, and 15 for about 60%. Uh, but that's you have to take into consideration that these implants are are placed in men who are elderly uh, who can't get erections because of diabetes or high blood pressure. So if I am making a, an assumption, they may not be having intercourse as often, but young, healthy guys who or patients who want to have intercourse will probably use it more often and therefore they may break sooner. So, but you're saying that the pump will typically need to be replaced sooner than the malleable rod, or are you saying the inverse? I, I'm saying uh, the, the pump in after foul, putting the, the inflatable penile implant, AKA the pump after phalloplasty, will probably need be needed replaced more frequently than a pump in, in anatomic penis. In, in the, um, when talking about malleable versus inflatable, when we're making that comparison, I found higher surgical revision rates in the malleable population. And I think that's because patients have had it uh, and then realize after a year or two, it's always there, it's always in the way. They'd rather go to the inflatable mm -hmm. because it's always there and always in the way. Right. Uh, and I, I don't hear too much of a switch from the inflatable to the, to the malleable. It's usually the malleable to the inflatable. Gotcha. And the, the, the complications are, are also uniquely different because the physical properties of both are very different. So for example, uh, the, with the pump, you have, you have problems from the pump. That's the most common source of problems. It could be the pump riding upward, causing pain or discomfort or making it hard to access. It could be the pump pushing through the skin, which is called an erosion. You don't get that with the malleable, but you do get that with the pump. Uh, but with the malleable, you have a higher risk of the implant popping off the bone because there's always weight within the implant and it's constantly, you, being pulled on the bone, it can pop off the bone more easily than the inflatable, which is usually flaccid when it's attached and it's not as heavy. So there's less chance of it detaching. Those are two uniquely different uh, complications from each. That's super helpful. Do you ever run into situations where the pump is not strong enough? Like the phalloplasty is too big or heavy and like maybe they can get an erection, but it's still sort of, you know, at a downward angle. Uh, yeah, you, the, the, the angle of the inflation is different for, for, for every patient. The lighter the penis, and usually the light penises are from the radial form, the easier it is to, to raise up. But it also depends on the anatomy, the pubic, the pubic bone tilt, how, where it's attached. Uh, so for some patients, it's a 45 degree raise. For others, it's a 90 degree raise. Um, for others, it's not much of a raise at all, but it's still anchored to the bone. 
and it gets rigid uh, internally. So that would provide the ability to penetrate in most situations. Gotcha. But in big ALT penises, a single rod can sometimes get lost. So sometimes we have to put two. But that said, the average girth of an erect penis is probably about five inches. And in ALT, if you're putting two, two cylinders in there or two rods in there, it's probably going to be more than five inches, probably in the six to seven range. It's hard to penetrate with uh, a, a penis that big. So mm -hmm. usually we, we, we do one, one cylinder. So if you have the option of doing two cylinders, though, is that, are you able to just like add a cylinder to the current pump and setup? Like, is it sort of like an add-on or are you, are you actually putting like two whole pumps in the penis? It's, so let, let me back up. I guess I'm not explaining <laughs> this, uh, this totally well. Uh, the cylinder, the, 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 the pump comes in three main components, but there are two cylinders, one reservoir and a pump. For a majority of patients who undergo implant surgery, we have to cut one of the cylinders off okay. because most penises can only accommodate one cylinder. The penises that need two cylinders, we leave it intact and then make a bigger uh, pubic bone anchor site so we can attach both sides of the, of the implants of the cylinders. Patients deciding between RFF and ALT, I feel like, you know, probably a lot of, I mean, what do I know? But um, my guess is that <laughs> probably a lot of patients come to you and they've already got uh, a way that they're leaning, right? Based on their own assumptions yeah. and preferences. Yeah. Um, if patients are having a really hard time choosing and maybe both options seem you know, very probable uh, for success, is there anything that you would say to help them you know, make that decision for themselves? Yeah, we usually go over the, the main surgical goals. So how important is it to be able to stand and urinate? Uh, how important is it to be able to eventually penetrate with, uh, with intercourse? Uh, how important is the aesthetics of the penis? How important is sensation? Do you want scrotoplastic vaginectomy? Those are the main initial questions to understand a patient's specific surgical goals. Most patients during consultation will already have in their mind kind of what they want, like, oh, I want an ALT. Uh, some want, oh, I want a form, others are undecided. But we still have the same type of uh, questionnaire to, to understand a patient's unique surgical goals. Once we understand their surgical goals, we can, can then tell them, is their, is their flap choice a good option for what they want? So in patients who want all of it, they want to be able to stand a pee, penetrate within the course and aesthetics, and, and all three are pretty important um, then the radio form is probably the better choice. Uh, in patients who say um, they don't want to stand and urinate, uh, they, they, they do want to penetrate within a course, they do want a, like a bigger than average size penis, then maybe an ALT without urethral lengthening would be a good choice. In, in patients who want all those three, uh, then we would say we need to look at your thigh anatomy. And we, we have to look at the thigh anatomy regardless. Um, but unless your thigh pinch is as thin as like your hand pinch like this, where your fingers are almost touching, it's hard to get a urethra at the same time. You would have to stage the building of the urethra later, which could take a surgery every six months or a couple of years uh, in patients who really want, want that. So um, it, it, what, we, what we tell patients is these are the options based on your surgical goals. This is probably the, uh, a reasonable option to consider. You can also consider this, but these are the pros and cons of each. If 
if patients go with uh, ALT and they get the full package, scrotoplasty, vaginectomy, everything, but they opt out of standing to pee, um, where do they usually urinate from? Do you just keep like a small opening behind the scrotoplasty? Correct. Correct. Now we do a, a very minimal partial urethral lengthening to get the original urethral opening closer to the perineal skin. We want to get the, the, the urethra to the level of the perineal skin. But yeah, we would, it would be behind the scrotum. All right. So we've already talked about tissue expanders. You talked about how you rarely use them, uh, except when patients don't have a lot, enough labia majora tissue. And I think maybe we covered the glands, you know, but tell me quickly about how can patients get the glands done at the same time as the phallus? Uh, in radial form phalloplasty, yes. In, in situations where uh, patients have the right anatomy, quote unquote, right anatomy involves uh, having a lot of uh, kind of fat in the arm. So if you look at my arm and I, and I pinch it, um, my fingers aren't really touching, which means I do probably have a healthy amount of fat underneath. And since the blood supply to the, the, the penis from the arm comes from the skin and the underlying fat, you can do a glance in that situation because when you do a glance, you have to make a near circumferential cut around the penis and then you raise the tissue. You're basically severing the blood supply from the shaft skin to the gland skin uh, from the skin part. But the fat underneath still gives the glands enough, enough blood that it'll survive. Uh, so that's why you can do it in a radio form. For the thigh, it's not as robust, so you can't do that with a thigh phallus. You have to hold off a thigh penis. You have to wait um, a while, uh, about six months or so, um, maybe three to six months before we do that. The reason why uh, we most patients wait till six months because they'd like to combine something else in addition to glansplasty, and usually the most common addition to glansplasty would be putting in testicle implants for the theor theoretical protective benefit of getting implants later and having that capsule. So that, that's our most common staging is uh, we, to minimize the risk of having glands problems, uh, we do a phalloplasty without glansplasty, whether it be radioform or thigh. And then about six months later, we then do glansplasty and testicle implants at the same time. And then six months after that, you can do the peanut implant with removal of one of the testicles. Gotcha. And then that's the perfect segue into recovery. Uh, just talk briefly about when people can return to work, when they can work out, when they can have sex. After the initial phalloplasty, the big surgery, it's probably two months to three months for a, a really active job, maybe a month or two for a more desk-oriented job. Uh, after the second surgery, which is a much smaller same-day outpatient surgery, desk job probably within a week. Uh, more strenuous job, you still have to wait probably four to six weeks. And then after implants, it's similar about a week or four to six weeks. Would they be, once they can return to work on that timeline you just explained, would that basically be the same timeline that they can also start beginning to work out and have sex and is all that sort of stuff kind of happening at the same time? Yeah, so after the initial one, working out probably in the two to three month range, uh, sexual activity around two months. After the second and third one, those are pretty similar in terms of surgery, uh, what's the word before? Um, I guess the, the, the severity or the, the, so the second and third surgery are much smaller. They're smaller surgeries, yeah. so it's the easier recovery. So I would say uh, working out is probably around uh, six weeks. So work is a little bit sooner, as long as it's not too strenuous. And then going back to really working out, running, things like that, probably in the six to eight week time scale. In terms of staying in town after surgery, if somebody has to fly in, um, 
for meta and for fallow? Yes, uh, for, the, for meta and fallow, the first surgery would probably be uh, four to five weeks in town, five for fallow, four for meta. Uh, for the second surgery, one to two weeks. For the implant surgery, the peanut implant, two weeks, ideally. If people have complications once they're home, how does that work with your office? Uh, the office number is always there. It's always checked. Uh, during daylight hours, my office staff answer it. After hours, if patients leave a message, it, it comes to uh, the messaging service and I get it and I contact them if it's, if it's emergent. Uh, I also am very, I, I'm very free with giving out my email to, to patients who've had surgery. And so uh, they will oftentimes be able to reach me via email. I check it like 10 to 20 times a day, uh, maybe more, <laughs> it just depends. And you're always on call basically when it comes to like aftercare support. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I try to not follow the the um, practice or or I guess business mantra of, oh, we'll get back to you in three to four business days. That's just not something that you can do. Uh, I usually try to get back to someone within a couple hours or so. Yeah, uh, yeah I, think, I think we've covered it all. So yeah, well, thank you so much again. And um, I look forward to posting this. And uh, I guess that's it. Awesome. I really thank enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the time. And um, we'll be in touch. You're welcome, Keaton. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate right. it. Bye. Bye. Hey, quick update that we've been busy uploading tons of products to our Mod Club store at clubftm.com backslash shop. We've added most of the products from TransGuy Supply, including all of their packers, STPs, Cake Bandit packing briefs and boxers, which are really great. Everything from transthetics like the Hot Rod and Lollipop, plus specialty items from queer-owned and operated shops like Come As You Are in Toronto, Canada, and Early to Bed in Chicago, uh, amongst many more I'm not naming. So we're uploading products there all the time to help you find everything in one convenient place. Head on over to clubftm.com backslash shop. When you start your search there and then purchase from the merchants, we get a small commission, the merchants get paid, and you get something you want. So it's a win-win all around and helps us continue to host this site and content. Now back to the show.